I want you to go to Revelation 17. We're in this chapter. Uh, we were in the first two verses, the introduction of this vision or this scene that John sees in the wilderness, the great whore upon a scarlet-covered beast. And scarlet-colored beast. Put your thumb there and go back to Ezekiel chapter 26. I had hoped or had thought I might continue a little bit last week, but I'm glad we took the time to hear from Brother TJ and the things he had to share and allow you guys to ask some questions. I didn't want to take away from that, and it was good just to let the service focus on that. So we're going to get back in this morning. I don't know how far we'll go, and then I'll be with you next weekend, and then it'll be it for a while. So I believe Brother Daniel's going to be teaching out of Philippians, and eventually you guys will we'll get through this book. So um, let's just see what happens. Um, just for review, I'll read the first two verses. There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication." So here we have, I'm following the outline that I used years ago when I wrote this commentary. Here we have the whore's introduction. And in verse 2, the way this entity is described is very similar to the way some nations are described in the Old Testament upon which God pronounces very specific judgment. And we had talked about similar language used in the prophet Nahum concerning Nineveh. Similar language used concerning the nation of Tyre in the book of Isaiah. And I thought it would be interesting to go and look at these prophecies that are kind of hard to understand and then look at how that judgment was fulfilled in history and how every detail, every word proved to be correct even though prior to the transpiring or the partial transpiring of these things in history they would have been confusing. So I wanted to look at these things as an example of what we're dealing with in Revelation 17 because what we're dealing with in Revelation 17 hadn't come to pass yet. Parts of it, types of it have been there throughout history. Parts of it in a sense, but it's not been completely fulfilled. And these things that were written about Nineveh entire were, and the way in which they are fulfilled reveals principles that we can use in trying to determine what's being talked about here and what that fulfillment may or may not look at like. At the end of the day, when God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen exactly as He says it. Now, we may not be able to understand that. We may not be able to predict the details. But when it's done, we see that it was fulfilled to the letter. And often the fulfilling of God's prophecy to the letter doesn't look anything like we thought it would. Yet, it was fulfilled to the letter. So that's why I've said all along in this study, I'm not being dogmatic about some of these things. I'm trying to interpret based upon biblical principles and interpreting Scripture with Scripture. And it may or may not look. This great whore may or may not be completely uh, related to the Roman Catholic Church. It may or may not uh, uh, involve this detail or that detail. But we know that God's judgment against the world system is sure we know he's consistent, and we've seen how he's acted in history. We talked about Nineveh. 
We talked about how God prophesied very specific things in Nahum concerning that city's overthrow. How the gates would be wide open for those besieging her. And there, it'd be accompanied by a great fire. We talked about how the Tigris River, uh, even the old poets used to say Nineveh would never fall unless the river became her enemy. And the Tigris River overflowed and it broke down a part of the wall and, as a, and the king ended up setting himself on fire in his palace and it caused a great conflagration. It burnt down a bunch of stuff and left the gates wide open. Exactly like God's word said so that the Babylonians and the Medes could march in. And Nineveh fell in 612 B.C. Then we started talking about Tyre and the, a prophecy in Ezekiel 26. Tyre is referenced in Isaiah chapter 23 in language very similar to what's used in Revelation 17. Mention about fornication, committing fornication with the kings of the earth. Tyre was an ally of Israel for a time. We talked about all that. Hiram, king of Tyre, and the materials that were given to David and Solomon and the alliance that existed. Over the years, Tyre became an enemy of Israel. And she was one, like the Edomites... Like the Moabites, who when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, she stood by, laughed and mocked, rejoiced in that judgment, mocked the Jewish people as they were judged by God. And God told her she was going to pay for that in Ezekiel the prophet. Ezekiel made a prophecy about the fall of Tyre. It's, you can't interpret it irrespective of the surrounding chapters where we see things telescoping to Antichrist and Satan and prefigured types thereof in the prince and king of Tyre. But Ezekiel made a very specific prophecy about Tyre's destruction and about Nebuchadnezzar coming against her. And that literally happened only a few months after the prophecy was written. You see, Ezekiel didn't even hear about the fall of Jerusalem until sometime later because news had to travel. He was over uh, uh, at a place called Tel Aviv in, in modern-day Iraq. He'd been taken captive earlier. But in the midst of all that, he prophesied that uh, Tyre would be punished by God for her evils. We talked about the great port of Tyre. It was a place where uh, it, was, it was central uh, to uh, the trade routes of the ancient world. The Phoenicians were a seafaring people. They traveled all over the world and traded in all sorts of goods. And Tyre was one of the most important ports in the ancient world. And everything came through there. And it was a very important city. It was a wicked city. It was not an idolatrous city. It was a prideful city that trusted in its own security and its own wealth and its own riches, much like we do today. Yet when God pronounced judgment, what took place was exactly, now looking back in history, what God said would take place. It tells us that many nations would come against Tyre. That Nebuchadnezzar would come against her. That he would... Slay her daughters in the field. He would make a fort against the city. He would cast a mount against it. He would set engines of war against his walls and break down the towers. He would shake her. He would enter into her gates and tread down her streets. That's exactly what the king did. In the same year that Jerusalem fell, he besieged Tyre. And Tyre was besieged for 13 years. There was famine, there was inflation, the people were hauled up in there, and eventually they couldn't consist anymore. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar broke into the city 
And we talked about how he trampled down and destroyed what was called Old Tyre. The mainland city. We talked about how there was a mainland city. Then there was an island city. The island city was a fortress about half a mile off the coast. And there was a strait between the island and the mainland that provided immense protection because of the winds and the the current in there. And then on the outskirts of the island, out toward the sea were ports where ships could literally just pull up there and trade. So there were two parts of the city. And what Nebuchadnezzar did is he tread down the mainland city, exactly what God said, and left the ruins there. And we'll, the, the ruins stood for years. We talked about how following that, there were uh, uh, this great financial depression. The Persian Empire took over Tyre, or the, the location. The island city continued. Egypt assaulted it. And we had gotten down to the days of Alexander the Great when I uh, finished preaching the last time we were here. And in the days of Alexander the Great, more than 200 years later, the ruins of old Tyre on the mainland still were still there. The buildings were still there. They were toppled. It was, the ruins were there. But the people had escaped to the island city, and the mainland city fell into disrepute and was just ruins. It says in Ezekiel's prophecy, it talks about what Nebuchadnezzar would do. And then it goes on in verse 12, instead of he, Nebuchadnezzar, it said, And they shall make a spoil of thy riches, and make a prey of thy merchandise. They shall break down thy walls, and destroy thy houses. And they shall lay thy stones, and thy timber, and thy dust in the midst of the water. So, We've already been told many nations would come against Tyre. We're told um, that many nations would destroy her walls and scrape the dust from her and make her like the top of a rock and make her a place where fishermen would spread their nets. We've already been told that. Many nations. We're told what Nebuchadnezzar would do and then we're told in verse 12 some things that would happen that Nebuchadnezzar didn't do. But it's not talking about he anymore. It talks about they. We've, we've already discussed in this journey numerous times how sometimes just a slight change of a pronoun makes all the difference in the world in God's Word. We need to pay attention to what God word, God's Word says. So many times we listen to what people say and we jump to conclusions. Because we don't listen to exactly what they say. And we think, well, because he's this or because he's that or because he is this affiliation, he must be wrong. When a lot of times what so-and-so says is, amen, exactly correct. How many times have you been accused of saying something you didn't say because your words were taken out of context or someone left out a word or two? Well, if we, don't, if we do that with the Scriptures, we're going to get in trouble. Here we have a pronoun change, and we get into some very specific prophecies about scraping the ground with Tyre and her rocks and her streets and her um, timbers and stones being cast into the sea. Well, Nebuchadnezzar didn't do any of that. We get down to 332 B.C., the rise of Alexander the Great. This was prophesied by Daniel. Daniel's vision, Nebuchadnezzar's vision, chapter 2, the coming of the Greeks. Daniel's vision, chapter 7, the third beast. Daniel's vision of the he-goat in chapter 8. And Daniel's uh, detailed visions about the kings of the north and the south in Daniel chapter 10. I think it's 10. 10 and 11. So this had already been prophesied a couple hundred years before, the coming of this great horn 
that would rise up and overthrow Persia. 332 B.C., Alexander the Great, an amazing uh, example in history of how someone can rise from obscurity and conquer the world in a very short period of time. It should be no surprise that a man like Antichrist could come out of nowhere and conquer the world. People have done that throughout history. You know, there are people in our own history that were used to do amazing things that came out of nowhere. Abraham Lincoln was just a poor farm boy and an obscure lawyer, a lawyer in Illinois. Then he's the president of the United States. Nobody thought he could win. General Grant quit the army and was a drunk, drinking himself to death. And then he's the commander of the Union Army in just a few years and president of the United States. You know, in a lot of ways, our president today is like General Grant. It's not like Andrew Jackson, like he likes to think he is. If he were like Andrew Jackson, Bob Mueller would have been fired weeks ago. Judges would have been arrested. The Constitution would have been followed, and he would have exercised the authority the Constitution gives him. He's not like Andrew Jackson. He's like Grant, a lot of good things, stands for a lot of good things, but he's surrounded by a complete an utterly corrupt government that nothing really is getting done. There's a whole lot of talk, but nothing's getting done. That's exactly what it was for General Grant's uh, uh, terms. He was not a corrupt individual himself, but his government was one of the most corrupt in our history because he was surrounded by people constantly yapping in his ears. And the same Yankees that burned and pillaged southern farms after the war went out west and did the same thing to the Indians. Same thing. Wicked. Wicked. America's got a lot of blood on its hands. Anyway, Alexander the Great with the Greeks, a very small army compared to what the Persians had, crossed the Hellespont into Asia and began to march down the Mediterranean coast. It subjugated the city of Sidon, which was a Phoenician city. And then it passed by, he passed by Tyre en route to Egypt. His goal was to go conquer Egypt. He had no desire to get sidetracked with these other cities. After subjugating Sidon, he passed by Tyre en route to Egypt. In Egypt, he would found the city of Alexandria that rivaled Rome later on in history as one of the great seaports. And then by... 331, he went to battle with the armies of Darius III at Arbela and with a small force, relatively speaking, overthrew the Persian army and the Persian Empire came to an end. So you have a lot of stuff going on in a short period of time. As he was passing by Tyre, where the, the, the ruins from Nebuchadnezzar's actions a couple hundred years earlier still, were still piled there, you can go to Jerusalem today and still see piles of Roman rubble where the Romans pulled down the temple. There's a pile of rubble where they pulled down a section of the wall that's been unearthed and it's sitting just where it was 2,000 years ago. So nothing fancy about that. Anyway, the Tyrian people who were now in the island city sent envoys out to meet Alexander and they offered him the city's allegiance. Look, we'll follow you. We're, we're, we'll, we'll be your allies. And then Alexander asked to test them or to prove them. He said, hey, all right, if you mean that, let me come into your city and I'd like to offer a personal sacrifice uh, in the temple of Heracles. Let me come offer a sacrifice in this because the Greeks had a god, Heracles, that was 
based upon the God the, Tyre, the, the Tyrians worshipped. And he wanted to come offer a per personal sacrifice. That's all he asked. And they said, no way. And they insulted him and shunned him. Well, he thought to just keep marching and continue on to Egypt. So when he realized he couldn't go in there and offer sacrifice, he sent messengers to the island city with a formal peace treaty so they could put it in writing. Well, the people of Tyre became very arrogant, thinking, oh, we're safe behind these walls. He ain't going to do nothing. So they took the messengers and they killed them and they threw their bodies over the wall into the sea right in front of the, the Greek army. So Alexander's attitude at that point was like, it! I can't let this go. I had no intentions of getting sidetracked here, but we're going to have to deal with this. So didn't even mean to go against the sea. Didn't even plan on it. But they kind of forced him into it. Kind of like Pharaoh Necho. He didn't want to mess with Judah. Didn't want to mess with King Josiah. He had another job to do, and Josiah just kept on. And as a result, dadgummit, I'm going to have to deal with this. Well, that's what happened. So from January to July, a seven-month period, Alexander's army besieged the island city of Tyre. Now, they couldn't go right up to the walls because there was a half a mile of water, open water, rough seas because of the current and the wind. Not like the calm seas on the other side of the island. But they besieged the city for seven months. And he decided that the only way they could conquer the city is they were going to have to build what's called a, what they called a mole or a causeway. So and act, act, just basically extend the land out, gradually build it out to where an island becomes a peninsula. And they had plenty of material sitting right there to do it with. There was lots of rock, lots of rubble right there that could be used to build this causeway, causeway courtesy of King Nebuchadnezzar. 200 years before. The rubble of the old city was piled right there for the Greeks to use. And what they did is they took those ruins and they began to pile them or cast them into the sea and gradually build this mole or this causeway half a mile out across the open water. Now this took some time. The Tyrians mocked them, laughed at them, they sent ships out there just out of range of their catapults to, to harass them and make fun of them. One time the, the Tyrians sent a barge with lots of material. They ignited it on fire and, and, and sent it right into the causeway that they were trying to build and exploded and destroyed a pretty large section. Eventually Alexander had to bring in ships from Sidon and Greece and Cyprus and create a blockade around the island to stop the harassment so they could continue their work. The Tyrians sent underwater divers under the ocean with hooks to pull out the blocks and the trees that were underlying the causeway foundation. When the causeway was almost complete, then a huge storm came in there and damaged a big part of it. So it was like running up against a problem every second. You know, there had to be think, thoughts like, what, what are we doing? Let's go on to Egypt. But they just kept working. Kept working. Finally, the, the mole got close enough to the island city that their catapults could reach the city. And they just began to saturation bombard the island city and its 150 foot high walls. And when the causeway was finally complete, the Greeks had literally scraped the ground of old Tyre 
and laid the stones, the timber, and the dust in the sea. Exactly what Ezekiel said. Literally did. Scraped it and laid it into the sea. With battering rams, they broke into the old city of Tyre. 7,000 Tyrians were killed to 400 Macedonians. 2,000 young men were crucified and 13,000 non-combatants were sold into slavery. Then Alexander burned the island city. And most amazing, you know, this prophecy said Tyre, the great port of the Phoenicians, would never be rebuilt. And amazingly, more than any of the damage done on the walls or the causeway or the soldiers, his greatest uh, uh, judgment against Tyre was when he went on to Egypt. Because in Egypt, the Greeks founded the city of Alexandria. Just a few months later. And Alexandria would become the second most powerful city after Rome in the ancient world. And it forever rendered Tyre insignificant in terms of a port of trade. Alexandria became her substitute and forever the track of the world's commerce was changed. Now, Alexandria today is modern day Egypt. It's insignificant today. It's no longer a port. Those things can change. God can bring things down. So exactly what was written here happened. In detail, looking back to the letter. The old city was scraped and thrown into the sea to make a causeway. Now over the years, sediment from the currents began to collect. And when you look at the site of Tyre today, there is no longer an island. The island actually broke off and fell into the sea long ago. But what you see is a peninsula. Alexander's causeway is still there. And just like the Roman ramp is still there at Masada. Alexander's causeway is still there. And modern day sewer in Lebanon is built, some of it is built on top of that causeway today. But the city of Tyre has never been rebuilt. When Alexander moved south, it was kind of an interesting thing happened as he moved into the land of Israel. When he came to Judah or near Jerusalem en route to Egypt, it says that the high priest and a company of priests actually came out to meet him with a copy of the prophecies of Daniel in their hand and showed him that what he was doing had been prophesied to Daniel, that the God of, the, of Israel had already said these things would happen. The high priest had been warned in a dream, supposedly, this is all Jewish tradition, this is not in the Scriptures, but the high priest had been warned in a dream that he needed to call a feast and open up the gates of the city when this ruler came. And that's what he did. So he went out to meet. And when Alexander saw the golden mitre on his head and the way he was dressed and the name of the God of Israel across his mitre, it says that he actually prostrated himself on the ground before God whose name he saw engraved on the gold mitre. Because while he was planning his campaign to cross into Asia and conquer these cities, he had a dream where a man dressed just like this high priest told him he would be successful. Had that name of God. So I mean, I don't know how true all that stuff is, but it's interesting. Alexander went with the priest into Jerusalem and he actually offered sacrifice to the God of Israel. He was shown Daniel's prophecies. And the next day he asked the Jews what they wanted from him. What do you want from me? And they said, we want one thing simple. We want freedom of religion. 
Allow us to worship God like we're supposed to. That's all we ask. And Alexander granted it. He granted that freedom to the Jews in Judah, to the Jews in Babylon, to the Jews in Persia. And he told them if any of them would enlist in his army, he promised them that they could follow their religion wherever they went. And a lot of Jews did enlist in his army. He left Jerusalem and everybody in the land of Judah received him as he marched toward Egypt and then later conquered Egypt and then later overthrew the Persians. And then the guy conquered this huge span of territory and he died when he was in his 30s. Some kind of strange sickness. Rose up quick and then was dead. But uh, was friendly to God's people Israel and fulfilled prophecy that God laid out in detail. It says in Ezekiel that Tyre would become a place that nets were spread and that thou shalt be built no more. The verb built is the Hebrew verb bana, which means to rebuild, okay, to cause to continue. If you look at a map today, people say, oh, I can look at Google Maps. There's, a, there's some kind of a city right there. So God's word was not fulfilled. Skeptics have always tried to say Ezekiel got it wrong. But just because something's on a piece of land doesn't mean what was there before has been rebuilt. What did they used to do when they built houses or remodeled houses here? They don't do this anymore. We saw this with our own eyes with our porch that we tore up some time ago because we were having a moisture problem under the house. We tore it up and we lowered it a couple of feet. What do you think we found under that original porch when we tore it up? What they used to do on a construction site with all the trash and the rubble? They built on top of it. If you look at ancient cities, they're tells, they're mounds, and there's different layers. And over the years, the new cities would build on top of the other ones, just like we used to do with our houses. I don't think they're allowed to do that anymore. But when you go to modern-day Tyre, there's no levels. There's no levels that go down to Phoenicia. There is no mound. There's settlement built on top of a causeway. That's not cities that were rebuilt. Skeptics mock this and say Ezekiel got it wrong and biblical prophecy is wrong when actually you look at subsequent history, it's amazing how right it was. After Alexander died, his kingdom divided to his four generals, just like the one horn became four, just like Daniel said would happen. Ptolemy, the king of the south, conquered and subjugated what was left of island Tyre until AD 315. Then the king of the north besieged for 15 months and captured it. And it went on and on, just like we see prophesied in Daniel 11. King of the north, king of the south, coming into the land of Israel, on and on and on. One historian said that Tyre's fate was to be an upper and a nether millstone. In Roman times, the city recovered a little bit as a republic and for a short time had independence that was respected by the Roman Empire. But in 20 B.C., Augustus Caesar took it away. And then, then it says, after that, after Caesar took away their independence, one historian said, her remaining history to this day is without significance. In fact, the Phoenician people that were so powerful in the ancient world and on the sea, some say they sailed as far as the Americas in their trades. We don't know for sure. They basically don't exist anymore. They found some DNA, I think, in, 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 in the and some of the peoples in Syria and Lebanon, but as a people, they're virtually extinct, just like the Canaanites. After 
Roman times, A.D. 193, the island city was plundered and its citizens were slaughtered. Five times between, in a hundred year period from A.D. 1055 to A.D. 1155, Egypt sacked, plundered, and burned the Roman city. What's interesting, there was a Jewish traveler in the middle of eight, middle ages. His name was Benjamin of Tuleta. And he traveled around and wrote a diary of his travels. It, it traveled for 13 years and visited 300 cities in the ancient Near East. And then he wrote about what he saw. And he wrote about what he saw in Tyre in his day. This would have been about 1170 A.D. These are his words. From Sidon, it is a half a day's journey to Sarepta, which belongs to Sidon. Thence, it is a half day to New Tyre, which is a very fine city with a harbor in its midst. There is no harbor like this in the whole world. Tyre is a beautiful city. In the vicinity is found sugar of a high class. Men plant it there, and people come from all lands to buy it. A man can actually ascend the walls of New Tyre and see ancient Tyre, which the sea has now covered, lying at a stone's throw from the new city. And one should care to go forth by boat, one can see the castles, the marketplaces, the streets, and the palaces in the bed of the sea. So this was written in A.D. 1170. Where he was was New Tyre. Not the same as Old Tyre. Old Tyre, you can take a boat out there and look under the water and you can see it under the water. Exactly what God said would happen. After this, there were two major earthquakes. In 1291, the Ottoman Turks invaded. It said everything in the city was resigned to the sword, the flame, and ruin. In 1097, some visitors left a travel journal, journal describing the citizens of Tyre as a few poor wretches subsisting chiefly on fishing. Remember God said that the fishermen would spread their nets? 1837, there was an earthquake that ransacked everything and it was said you couldn't even walk into the the modern, the, the, the 18th, 19th century city after that earthquake. It was so destroyed, you couldn't even walk in there. People just kind of abandoned it. 1931, there's a black and white picture of Syrian fishermen hauling in their nets from the site of ancient Tyre. You can look that up online. Today, the area is a city known as Sur with 117,000 Lebanese. The principal ruins that you can find there today, there are ruins there. If you look on Google Earth, you can see ruins. But they're from the Crusaders. They're not from ancient Tyre, Phoenicia. There's some Greco-Roman ruins. There's an old Roman hippodrome you can see from the sky. But these are ruins from years and years and years later. They have nothing to do with the Phoenicians. There's no traces of Phoenician Tyre upon whom Ezekiel pronounces prophecy. No tales, no mounds. And you can't even excavate because of the continuous settlement and the continuous upheaval. There's nothing to excavate. Today, what you see is not a city. It's not unfulfilled prophecy that the skeptics mock at. What you see is a typical third world ramshackle sprawl. A few asphalt streets, some apartment blocks. And these are built up on not the city of Tyre, but Alexander's Causeway. 
They're built up on his mole that his army built into the water. If you look it up on Google Earth, you can do it now. You see a little peninsula. The peninsula wasn't there. There was an island that was beyond that peninsula that's under the water now. So an island is literally a peninsula. In fact, you can kind of see this on some satellite photography. There are a lot of black reefs offshore of mod the modern end of the peninsula, which make it very difficult to navigate ships there around modern-day sewer. Um, there are a lot of reefs offshore. Well, Tyre was one of the great trading harbors of the ancient world. So these black reefs, which are a threat to navigation, they couldn't have been there during the days of the Phoenician city, but they're there today because the Phoenician city's underwater. It's like the Bible said. The mainland... Phoenician city was gone with Alexander. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. The ruins were cast in the sea with Alexander. The island city later broke off and fell into the sea long ago. Just like Ezekiel said, I will bring them, I will bring thee down with them that descended the pit, and I will set thee in the low parts of the earth with them that go down to the pit, with that, but that thou should not be inhabited. So, exactly what God said happened. Didn't happen with Nebuchadnezzar. Didn't happen to have to happen with him because the Bible changes the pronouns and said many nations would come against it. And this continued for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And what's there today is not Tyre. It's a, it's a Lebanese village that looks like a typical ramshackle third world village. Zoom in on Google Earth. Not a place I'd like to live. So in talking about Nineveh and Tyre, I know this is a little bit of a sidetrack from Revelation. I think there are four things these examples teach us about detailed prophecies of judgment in the Scriptures against nations or cities, and by default with regard to Babylon that we see in Revelation 17 and 18. There are four things we can learn by seeing these examples and studying them. Number one, when God pronounces judgment on an entity, that judgment is literal. It's literal. When God says the nations that forget God will be cast into hell, that's literal. America has forgotten God. America will be cast into hell. It's that simple. When God says that nations who mock and come against Israel will be punished, that's what He means. And He gives us examples of that. Edom and Tyre and others. Secondly, judgment's not just literal, it's to the letter. The gates of Nineveh were open. Tyre was scraped into the sea and has never been rebuilt. It's to the letter. Tyre, the old, the mainland city of Tyre that Nebuchadnezzar brought down literally was scraped into the sea so that Alexander's army could build a bridge out to the island city and bring it down. And then the island city fell off. It broke off the peninsula sometime later and fell into the sea to where a Jewish traveler could go out on a boat and look down and see it. To the letter. Number three, the details are unforeseeable. When God prophesies future judgment, the details are unforeseeable. No, no one could have known in Ezekiel's day, that this was talking about something which would happen 200 years later. 
The details were unforeseeable. When we look at Revelation in 17 and 18, we know that what will happen to Babylon, both ecclesiastical and commercial Babylon, will be literal. It will be to the letter, but we can't see the details on this side of history. Just like it was hard for people to see the details about Isaiah 66 and God's promise to Israel until after it happened. In 1948, a single day, a nation was born. You know, I can understand people getting off base. I can understand the reformers looking at scriptures and wondering, are these things literal with regard to Israel? Maybe this is the church. Maybe it's not literal. But you have no excuse to think that way today on this side of history, on this side of Israel being regathered in unbelief, just like Isaiah and Jeremiah said they would. You have no excuse for that. You know, there's a lot of people out here today, it, it, it amazes me how people come out of their holes when a man, you know, who undoubtedly was used by the Lord, didn't mean he did everything right. I certainly didn't agree with his methods later on in life. I've never been a fan of the crusade ministry. I think it does a lot of damage. Not just one man's crusades, but crusades everywhere. It does a lot of damage today. I've never been a fan of the sinner's prayer. I didn't like pray this prayer after me. Never been a fan of that. But just because I'm not a fan of something like that doesn't mean that God doesn't use people. And it's funny how a man dies and his body's barely cold in the grave and then all these people come out of their holes and want to talk about everything he did wrong. Mm -hmm. And they think that just because somebody beat them up on the streets that that makes them an authority. Well, you know, throwing a proverbial rock in a hornet's nest and pissing somebody off so that you get beat up, that's not persecution. The Bible tells us as much as is possible to be at peace with all men. So if I'm going to go preach out on the street in a Muslim area, if I'm going to try to be at peace with all men, I'm not going to stand up on the block and say Muhammad was a false prophet and a child molester and all you filthy, wicked Muslims are going to burn in hell. Or carry a pig's... I mean, who's going to listen to that? Now, does that mean I don't answer truthfully if a man asks a question? No. But I'm going to go out there and preach Christ and come what may. But... I don't even know where I was going at this point. It's, ama it's amazing how people come out of their holes to be critical. Anyway, okay, I know where I was going. You know, all these people that, you know, they have no excuse for thinking that God's promises to Israel are not literal on this side of history. And these people that come out of their holes a lot of times, like are happening now with Dr. Graham, and talking about, you know, you people that you won't see the truth and you won't criticize him because, you know, you worship a man and you care more about a man than you care about God's Word. These are the same people who filter everything they say and do through John Calvin. Everything they say and do through some reformers who lived in a different day and time and didn't think something could be literal. And so they think, well, it can't be literal. And they ignore what's going on around them. So it's funny how sometimes people are so hypocritical and they can't even see it. God, will, Billy Graham will answer to God for the things he did wrong, just like we will. Just like we will. People don't like my methods. I'm not saying they've always been right. But there's no denying historically that God used him to speak the name of Jesus to a whole lot of people. 
Now, whether they came to Christ or not, it's not Billy Graham's fault. It's amazing how Christians devour their own. They'll give a, they'll give a wicked homosexual the benefit of the doubt. They'll give these idiot kids at this Parkland High School the benefit of the doubt. Idiot kids looking to profit off of a, off of a horrible situation. Yes. Kids that hate God, most of them probably hate God, based on my interactions with American youth. Like, the likelihood is these people you see on TV hate God. They're, 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 they love to drink and party. They probably sleep with anything that moves. And uh, they would mock, mock and harass a street preacher that came preaching the gospel. And they want to tell us what we shouldn't, shouldn't do with our guns. And it's like, oh goodness, if I criticize this poor, this poor child, it's so evil. Come on. Anyway, God's judgment is literal. It's to the letter. It's unforeseeable ahead of time. And it's fulfillment, the fourth thing, it's fulfillment is often a stumbling block to the wicked. They can't see it, even though it's clear. A lot of times it's never as expected, but it's always as it was written. So what God says here in Revelation about Babylon, it's not going to be as we expected. Some people think they got it figured out and think this is all about the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. That's got to play into it somehow if you know history. But it's not going to be as some of these people who think they've got it figured out expect it, but it will be exactly as it's written. And I think that's what we learn from these examples. Apologetics has its place when it comes to arguing prophecy and why the Bible proves itself to be true. But when it comes to the wicked, my friends, these things are a stumbling block to them because they don't have eyes to see. Apologetics has its place. It has its place amongst the brethren to encourage us to strengthen our faith. But if you think you're going to win an argument with somebody whose heart is bent on hating God, you're foolish. The gospel must be preached. The gospel must be preached. Hell and judgment must be preached. When we look here in Revelation 17, we've talked about the whore's introduction. We're going to get into her description. There has to be some connection here to Roman Catholicism. There just has to be. When we look at Roman Catholic history, and I've talked about a lot of that. We talked about that in the messages to the seven churches. I'm not going to get into all that again. But there has to be a connection here. When we look at how these prophecies were filled and these lang- the language that's used here, there has to be a connection. In Revelation 17, we see an ecclesiastical entity. In Revelation 18, we see a commercial entity. When I look at history, we saw the commercial entity of the Roman Empire give birth to the ecclesiastical monster that became the Roman Catholic Church. That was such a key part in the history of the church age. Something John was seeing. He was seeing pagan Rome in his day. And later, pagan Rome would become Christian Rome, which would become more of a persecutor of God's people than pagan Rome ever was. You wonder why John was so shocked when he saw what he saw. I think what we see here is history repeating itself. History that was spread out over hundreds of years 
is going to repeat itself in the tribulation very quickly, particularly after the rapture of the church. I believe, based on my study of these chapters, that after the true church is raptured, that Roman Catholicism is going to quickly retain the power it once had. Very quickly. Still has a lot of power. But it's going to quickly come to the forefront and become dominant. It will be what helps the Antichrist come into power. And what we see with the great whore is what I believe we will see God's fake or the fake church claiming to be the truth after the true church is raptured out. It's going to be used to usher Antichrist into power in the first half of the tribulation and the interval between the rapture and the beginning of that 70 week. We, we, we don't know how long that is. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist and his ten kings are going to betray and destroy this religious entity that brought, helped bring them into power. That's what we see here. A religious entity is used to usher, to guide and to usher the beast into power. And then when he has power, he turns upon the whore and devours her. There's an ecclesiastical and a commercial entity. And we look, we look at what happened in history with the Roman Empire and the Roman Church. We, we see history repeating itself. It's just flipped. The Roman Empire gave birth to the power of the Roman Church. And the Roman church betrayed the empire. What we're going to see happen in the future is the Roman church gives, gives birth to the revised Roman empire and the empire then turns and devours the church. History repeating itself. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. We see her introduction, the great whore's introduction in the first two chapters. Verse 2 is very similar language to what was spoken of of Tyre and Nineveh in the Old Testament. Then we get to verses 3 through 6, her description. This whore is described in detail. So he, that is the angel, one of the seven angels with the seven vials, stepped out of his role as pouring out the vial judgments to explain some things to John. We have a pause in the chronology. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So here we have this whore described in detail as John saw it. It says he was carried into the wilderness and saw her in the wilderness to behold. And then John writes down what he sees. Greatly surprised. Greatly surprised. Not something he would expect. It's kind of contrast later in the book, in chapter 21, verse 10. John has shown something else that amazes him. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. The holy city is spoken of as the bride. So it and the 
the, the remnant church, the raptured church, are in a sense one and the same. Just like the living word, Jesus, and the written word in a way are one and the same. When John is shown the true bride of Christ, he's shown from a great high mountain. But what he's shown here is from the wilderness, the desert. What did he see? He saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast. That beast had seven heads and ten horns and was full of names of blasphemy. Turn back to chapter 13, verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the, names of bla- the name of blasphemy. Who is this in chapter 13? Who's this beast out of the sea in chapter 13? We talked about it in detail. It's Antichrist. Satan's Superman, his general that betrays Israel, signs a peace treaty with her and then betrays him and then attempts to conquer the world. Satan manifests in the flesh. Satan, the second person of the satanic trinity. Seven heads and ten horns and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now these horns have crowns here. When we come to Revelation chapter 17, what John sees is a scarlet colored beast Wait a minute, I've lost my place here. A scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy. So the names are all over him. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Now what you don't see here are crowns. What you see in chapter 13 are seven heads, ten horns, and they're crowns. Here you have seven heads, ten horns. The multicolored beast of chapter 13, what we see here is a red beast, one color covered in names of blasphemy, the other names on the head. Very interesting uh, uh, differences. The whore herself is decked in purple and scarlet, gold, precious stones, pearls. She's got a golden, beautiful chalice in her hand, but it's full of abomination. She's got a name on her forehead, and she's drunk, not on wine, but on the blood of saints and martyrs. A horrendous picture. We see in verse 3 her position. Her position is one that sits. She sitteth. It says she sitteth in verse 1. She, I saw her sit in verse 3. Now in the original language, this verb in both cases, verse 1 and verse 3, is what's a, called a present middle participle. In other words, it's not a passive thing. She sits actively. She sits and guides versus passive sitting. You know, the Mongols were some of the greatest horsemen in all of history. And when they drove their horses, they sat in wooden saddles. And they had no reins. There were no reins. They sat on those horses and they guided them with the way they positioned their body and their knees. And they overtook large swaths of land. Ferocious. I thought about that when I looked at this verb. This is a rider upon a beast that sits on that beast, guiding and controlling that beast. That's what you have here. The verb could mean nothing else. So we have a whore on top of a scarlet colored beast that looks a lot in its description like what we see about Antichrist. 
But that beast is being controlled by her. She sits upon it. She guides it. What we have in is ecclesiastical power distinct from the commercial and the political power of the beast. And it's guiding and managing the beast. So we have an ecclesiastical power guiding a commercial power. Turn back to chapter 6, verse 2. This reminded me about something that was said when the first seal was opened. The first seal judgment. Remember, everybody talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. not the four horsemen, it's four horses. The horse are bringing people in. Verse 2, I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. This is Antichrist. He arises in peace. He has a bow with no arrow. And a crown or power is given to him by someone else. Now obviously God gives that authority to fulfill his will. But here in Revelation 16, we see a great whore with the power or the authority to to guide or to bring into power. It agrees with what was said in the first seal. So I think we're looking back at what's going on in the early part of the tribulation. The woman seated and guiding the political power is supported by the political power. But she possesses the dominant role and outwardly controls. If you study history, this is a perfect picture, picture-perfect description of at least a thousand years of Roman Catholic history where the kings of the nation-states of Europe after that were left over from the Roman Empire but then became nation-states, where those kings supported the Pope. But the Pope controlled them. He had his power because he was supported by them, but with his power he could control them. We talked about the Popes. When I looked at Thyatira, when we looked at Pergamus, we talked about how... I mean, we traced the Babylonian paganism down... Uh, into Babylon from the early days of Nimrod and up through the Adelan priest kings and how that came into Rome and was brought into the Catholic Church. I'm not going to get into that all again. But this is a picture-perfect description of what Roman Catholicism was for at least a thousand years in history. How could this not play in some way? As late as 1825, Pope Leo XII struck a medal or a medallion to honor his papacy. On one side was his name. On the other side was a woman with a cup in her hand. And this Latin phrase, sede super universum, the whole world is her seat. <laughs> Not trying to hide it. Woman seated on a beast over the wilderness that we learn later is all the peoples of the world with a cup in her hand. Is that a coincidence? I believe what, we're see- what John is seeing here is chronologically prior to what he sees in chapter 13. This beast he sees in chapter 17 is the same beast as chapter 13, but chapter 13 is a fully grown adult. What we see here is a pup. The puppy. The puppy form of the beast. It's a single color. Look at this in the animal kingdom. The king vulture. The swan. 
The harp seal. The great panda. When a great panda is born, what color is it? Anybody know? Scarlet. It's a pink color. The emu, the taper, these are all born and in their pup stage they look very different. They're the same in some areas, but they're very different than what they look like as an adult. That's what we see here. The beast is a puppy. Single colored. It doesn't have any crowns yet on its horns. Names of blasphemy all over it. It's going to morph into a multicolored beast with crowns on its horns and an authority here that it does not have. This pup has the color of his father. Who is his father? The great dragon of Revelation 12. A scarlet colored dragon, a red dragon. This puppy has the color of his father. But as an adult, he's a composite, multicolored entity with all power, just like Daniel describes him in chapter 7. Verse 4, the woman is described, she's manifested as being decked in all these precious clothing and jewels, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abomination. This picture of a woman is in direct opposition to what God says, what the Word of God says pleases God about a woman. Now what's described here agrees with what the world says today a woman is and should be, but it's directly opposed to what God says pleases Him in the life of a woman or a sister in Christ. Let's look at a couple verses real quick. Let me just go on to one, if you guys don't mind. Daniel, if you'll look up 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. And Gene, I'll have you read 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. We've talked about these before, but let's just review. Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold are of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. What pleases God in the life of a woman is a meek and quiet spirit. The opposite of this slut on a beast, and the opposite of the average American woman, or what society says the American woman should be. God hates feminism. Hates it. God hates when men take advantage of women. God hates it when husbands abuse their wives. God hates it when women make false accusations against men. It never happened. God hates all that. But American feminism, God hates it. Because it's the opposite of what's described here. What's described... In Revelation 17 is American feminism. And it's wicked. God says a meek and a quiet spirit is of a great price. Now this is not saying it's wrong for women to wear jewelry. Wrong to fix up their hair. Because if that's what it's saying, then it means it's wrong to put on clothes. And how can you be modest and not have clothes? So we know that that's not what it's saying. It's saying that a meek and quiet spirit ought to shine brighter than what we wear. 
First Timothy 2, 9 and 10. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which uh, becometh women professing godliness with good works. The whore on the beast is the direct opposite of this. God says that a woman should clothe herself with good works and let that be what shines. It says to dress modestly. Modesty doesn't mean a woman can't wear pants. That's not what it says. It doesn't say that. You know, you can take God's Word and make it say something it doesn't say and come off all conservative and righteous and be just as wrong as the guy that comes at it from the left-wing angle. But what God is pleased with in a woman is a meek and quiet spirit and good works. Things that Proverbs 31 details. But that's the opposite of what America says you young ladies should grow up to be. It's the opposite. What you see marching in the streets is evil. It's the spirit of mystery Babylon. It's the spirit of the great prostitute that will be devoured by those she thinks is her friend. All these people out here that these feminists think support them. You know, there's only one logical explanation for why feminists, homos, and Muslims yoke up together. It's because they're controlled by the same demons. Because these people don't realize that these same Muslims that they yoke up with in their Muslim countries will throw them off a building. And the ones they accuse of hate, the Bible-believing Christians who love them enough to tell them the truth are really the only ones that truly do care about us. But the world is upside down. God is pleased with a meek and quiet spirit. That doesn't mean you can't share your opinion. That doesn't mean you belong in the kitchen every day. That doesn't mean you can't speak truth and rebuke your husband when he needs to be rebuked. It doesn't mean you can't rebuke a man that needs to be rebuked. God's laid out rules for the church. We ought to obey them. doesn't mean you can't be used by God. God loves a meek and quiet spirit. This whore is decked in purple and scarlet. Purple was the color of the Roman emperors. He who was given the purple cape was the emperor. There were times when more than one had the purple. It's the color of the Roman popes. Just go Google the pope in his garb, in his get up. And he's got purple on. Purple's the color of the Roman emperors. It's the color of the Roman popes. Scarlet's the color of the Roman cardinals. I mean, you can't deny that these colors were prominent in ancient Rome and in Roman Catholicism today. I don't get these get-ups that people wear. Okay, if you're going to wear a get-up while you're doing your little religious ceremony, okay, fine. That's what you do. But when I was watching that the stream, I was, I was streaming the funeral service the other day for Dr. Graham down there in Charlotte. And as it panned out over the crowd, there were people in that crowd who had no part in the service whatsoever decked out in these get-ups. I mean, ridiculous-looking get-ups. I mean, some of the things the Orthodox Jews wear are the stupidest-looking things I've ever seen. You got your penguins, and then you got your guys when it's 80 degrees outside with these big fur hats on walking around. Now, the reason why they dress like that is because there was some rabbi 500 years ago in Europe, which was bitterly cold in the winter, who dressed like that. And so they dressed like a rabbi from hundreds of years ago because he did something good or he taught them something. And so basically they worship a man. That's why they dress like that. It's ridiculous. 
But I'm going to tell you right now that there are a lot of so-called Gentile Christians that get in these get-ups and their religious whatever they do that are far more ridiculous than some of the Orthodox Jews. And you saw that sitting in the crowd at that funeral. Some Catholic dudes probably, some Orthodox, some guy had a big old hat that's blocking my grandmother from her view. Now, okay, if you're going to wear that garbage while you're doing your little religious ritual, I would understand. But who would wear a get-up like that as a guest at another man's funeral unless you wanted to draw attention to yourself? Amen. There's no reason to dress like that to go to another man's funeral unless you want to draw attention to yourself. Just like the only reason why his daughter mentioned her divorce and her ex-husband from that pulpit is to draw attention to herself. No other reason. Didn't mention the name of Jesus. No surprise there. Praise God for a couple of kids he had that did. But don't make the assumption that all the children of a godly man are godly. Very rarely works out that way. Don't let your guard down and just assume your children are going to grow up and follow the Lord. You don't see that in the Scriptures very much. I don't even know if you could show me in the Scripture where every child of a godly man or a patriarch followed the Lord. Don't make that assumption. Don't assume because somebody's last name is something that what they say or do is right. It's not. Typical religious garb we have described here. Catholic garb, ridiculous garb. Then a cup in her hand, beautiful golden cup. But inside is the blood of the saints and martyrs. She's drunk upon it. It reminded me of something Jesus says in Matthew 23 when I think about man made religion. And I'm not just talking about Catholics and Mormons and Islam and Buddhists and all that. I'm talking about a lot of people that would call themselves Protestants or Bible believing Christians. Jesus said, Matthew 23, he said to the religious hypocrites, verses 25 and 26, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. That's in a nutshell. Jesus says in a nutshell what he elaborates a little more about in the message to the church at Laodicea. On the outside you're beautiful, but on the inside you're filthy. You're a posse. And that's religion. That's what man-made religion is. Pretty on the outside, disgusting and dirty and abominable in God's eyes on the inside. That's what it was in Israel in the old days. That's what it was in Catholicism. That's what it is in a lot of so-called Baptist churches in this country. And that's what it is with the great whore, the pinnacle of ecclesiastical hypocrisy. I'm going to end here uh, really soon. I want to show you something before we end. It's quite interesting. Matthew, get ready with that. Um, this woman is decked with purple and scarlet, gold, silver, pearls. Has a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. The word fornication here in the Greek is the word porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. Porno. 
The golden cup in her hand is beautiful, but it's full of her spiritual adultery. Pornea. She's proud. She's lifting a toast. She's toasting what's in that cup. Spiritual adultery. There are few crimes against God spoken of in such disparaging terms in the Bible as spiritual adultery. That's what brought God's judgment upon Israel. That's what the church at Laodicea is guilty of. That's what man-made religion is guilty of. And those that are guilty are often lifting a toast in their pride. Not only are they spiritual adulterers, they're proud of it. You know, I know this woman here is a religious entity, but when I read this description, I think about that golden cup being lifted high. I can't help but think about my own country. We think we're so great. We're so proud. It looks so inviting to the nations of the world to come and drink the American dream. But what's really in that cup? What's really in it? We're such a proud people. You know, we on the you know, we let, we get listening to politics and talk radio and all that stuff. You know, we can get wired up. You know, people on the left say these things and do these things and take people out of context. And then we start looking at politicians we like and then we become blind to what they're doing wrong and we become allegiant to them. And then we start taking people out of context and everybody gets hysterical and they're all the same and they all deserve each other. We shouldn't be like that as the church. We should strive to be at peace. We should stay on the outside, do our duty. And there's some battles that we just don't need to get involved in. There's a lot of great men of God who made a mistake by stepping into the political realm. I think there were some things that Billy Graham done, did where that was concerned he shouldn't have done. Jerry Falwell did the same thing. And I'm sure if I were given that influence, it'd be hard for me not to do it. I, I, when I look at these things, and it makes me content to be a nobody. After I listen to that funeral, and I praise God the Bible, the gospel was proclaimed. But I actually sat there and thought to myself, you know, God, I'm content to be a nobody. To be used by you in a small way because I would never want the temptation to fraternize with wicked presidents. Maybe you could use me, but I don't want the temptation because I'm afraid I could so easily compromise. And I'm not saying that's what he did. I'm just saying the temptation has to be strong. But while I was studying this passage this morning and thinking about that funeral, out of nowhere... Something came to my mind from about 10 years ago. Do you remember when President Obama was running for president the first time? And you remember how the media, they wouldn't cover these things that were questionable in Obama's life. But there were things that got played over and over and over again by Sean Hannity and Fox News ad nauseum that I couldn't hear it anymore. I didn't even want to hear it anymore. And we thought, how terrible, how terrible, how terrible. Who remembers preacher Jeremiah Wright? Goddamn America. Have you ever listened to what he said in its context? Not the phrase that Sean Hannity played over and over again, and not the phrase that Fox News played over and over again, but what he actually said in its context. Because if you did, there's not much there I disagree with. So I want to end on that today. Matthew, Matthew, we're going to pray. We're going to, we're going to listen to Jeremiah right here for a minute. I want to make a point. When I'm thinking about this whore with her cup lifted high and I'm thinking about my country today. 
I don't want you to don't don't even think about who this man is or what he did or whatever. Just listen to the words. That's all I'm asking you to do in their context. Where governments lie, God does not lie. Where governments change, God does not change. Amen. And I'm through now. But let me leave you with one more thing. Governments fail. The government in this text comprised of Caesar, Quirinius, Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate. The Roman government failed. The British government used to rule from east to west. The British government had a union jack. She colonized Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, and Hong Kong. Her navies ruled the seven seas all the way down to the tip of Argentina in the Falklands. But the British government failed. The Russian government failed. The Japanese government failed. The German government failed. And the United States of America government, when it came to treating her citizens of Indian descent fairly, she failed. She put them on reservations. When it came to treating her citizens of Japanese descent fairly, she failed. She put them in internment prison camps. When it came to treating the citizens of African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America that's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating our citizens as less than human. God damn America as long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. Now, the guy's got on a ridiculous getup. The guy has his eyes open to certain things but blind to others. No question about that. But when you listen to those words in their context, not as they were ripped out, there's not a whole lot that I would disagree with. My problem with his statement is not one of substance. It's one of the mood he tries to use. Guys, when we use God's name as a subject and damn as a verb, completely appropriate. We need to be careful what mood we use. Some of you guys don't even know what mood is because you never learned that in English. He uses the indicative mood. You don't tell God to damn something. But there is a mood, a subjunctive mood, where we express a desire and a wish and can do so based upon God's truth and what God says about wicked nations and what, based upon what we know here about this whore with a golden cup filled with filth. If I were to say it, I'd say it this way. Not God bless America, but may, that's a subjunctive mood, may God damn America for killing innocent people. I'm not talking about black thugs in Chicago 
that are gunning each other down. I'm talking about the unborn. May God damn this country for the blood of the unborn. May God damn America, subjunctive mood, for treating her citizens as subhumans. I'm not talking about black athletes making millions of dollars who claim to be oppressed and kneel during the national anthem. I'm talking about righteous people, both black and white, Hispanic, Asian, who love their families, who believe the Bible, who question evolution, mothers who are in the home, all of these that are mocked and treated as subhumans, those that homeschool their children, those that do righteous things and try to live righteously and value freedom are mocked and treated as subhumans. May God damn America for that. And may God damn this country as long as, exactly the words he uses, as long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. I don't care who's in power. As long as this country tries to act like God and like she is supreme, she is this whore. And may God damn her to hell. That's not us. I don't have a problem with that. I'm going to be very careful about using the indicative mode when I talk about God and His judgment. Because you'll tell God what to do. But as far as using the subjunctive mode, I know I'm getting into some English grammar here. But hey, maybe we need to say that more. You know, as long as this country thinks it's God, which it still does today, even with the president we have today. Man, if you guys can't see the man's full of pride, you're blind. Full of it. We need to be very careful. You know, this here is a lesson about, you know, people on the right side of the aisle can take people out of context too. I mean, I wish more Baptist preachers would speak like this about the sins of our country. Now, you know, this guy likes to focus on things that happened a long time ago and ignore what's happening right now. That's a problem too. But there's truth in that. What this country did to Native Americans in the West, those same Yankee soldiers that burned our southern towns, was wicked and evil. Just because America does something that's not right doesn't make it right. And those that think like that, I don't care if they go to church every Sunday, that's wrong. And you're as blind as those who look upon a whore like this and actually think that's beautiful and can't see the filthiness that's inside the cup. I'm not claiming that Mystery Babylon here is America. I'm not claiming that. America is very significant in history up to this point in terms of the world's commerce and in terms of the world's religion. She's part of the world system. There's a lot in America today that's a type of what we see here. And we need to be those that call it what it is. Wicked. And if it won't be made right, if it won't repent, may it be damned just like this woman. As with Israel, so with the church. Israel committed spiritual fornication. America has committed spiritual fornication. We've committed it in our churches. I despise the ecumenism. I despise the idea that we can fraternize with Catholics and Mormons that preach another Jesus and actually think that's righteous. It's not. I can understand the mentality that you don't want to call names and... You don't want to be given an opportunity to preach the gospel and focus on what somebody's doing wrong, just preach Jesus. I understand that. If a Catholic church opened an invitation for me to come speak, I would. I'm not going to change what I say. I'm going to preach the gospel. 
I understand the mentality that would say, well, if the first thing that came out of my mouth is the Pope is the Antichrist in the Catholic Church, you need to come out of it, you're going to burn in hell. Nobody's going to listen to me. I understand that. But it doesn't mean what I'm going to preach is any different than what the Bible says. So I understand all that. But we need to throw away this mindset that fraternizing with a fake Jesus and a fake religion is a good thing because it's not. Because fake religion, Mormon Jesus, Catholic Jesus, that's what's held aloft by this great whore. And she's drunk on the blood of the saints and the martyrs. I think the great whore we're going to see is the ultimate fulfillment of spiritual adultery. Manifest on this planet in a, in a, in a worldwide religious system that raises up when the two true church is taken out. And the only reason why it doesn't have this power right now is because the church, along with the indwelling Holy Spirit, is a restrainer. But once that, And in many ways, the true church restrains the power of the Vatican even today, as it's done since the days of Reformation. But when the true church is gone, there's nothing restraining it. And it's going to come back. And it's going to usher, it's going to guide and control that puppy of a beast. And when it gets full grown, just like those who think it's cute and cuddly to keep little wild animals in their home as puppies and raise them and chimps and all that. Some woman, I don't remember where this was up in the Northeast some years ago, had this little monkey or something that she raised from a puppy. But when it became adult, it attacked her, ripped her face off and killed her best friend. That's right. So that's what we see happening here. And it ought to make us somber. It is only through ecclesiastical compromise that Antichrist can come to power and make his claims and get his following. But as we think of these things, we need not be discouraged. We need not be depressed. I'll end with this. Verse 17 of chapter 17. I know I'm jumping ahead. For God hath put in their hearts... To fulfill His will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. In all of this, God has put in their hearts to fulfill His will so that all His word will be fulfilled. And when all of His words are fulfilled, we'll look back and say, God did it. He did it literally. He did it to the letter with details that could not be foreseen, and with a fulfillment that was a stumbling block to the wicked. Let God be true, and every man a liar.